everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Anna. I'm Nandini, and today we're thrilled to have Reginald Dwayne Betts with us. Betts is an American poet, memoirist, teacher, and a current PhD candidate at Yale University. At the age of 16, Betts was arrested for carjacking and sentenced to nine years in a maximum security prison. He holds a BA from the University of Maryland and a JD from Yale Law School. Betts also served by appointment of former President Barack Obama as a practitioner member of the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the author of multiple books, including Bastard of the Reagan Era, which was awarded the Penn New England Poetry Prize. His first collection of poems, Shahid Reads His Own Palm, won the Beatrice Hawley Award. Betts' memoir, A Question of Freedom, a memoir of learning, survival, and coming of age in prison, was a recipient of the 2010 NAACP Image Award for Nonfiction. Thank you so much for joining us, Duane. To get started, we like to ask a question about your early life. Um, and so we want to know what you wanted to be when you grew up, um, if you envisioned your life looking, your career ambitions looking as they do now when you were younger. I was thinking of this song and it said, um, I can't remember who sings it, but it said, um, it said, um, I asked him what he wanted to be and he said alive. And then I think it's a goody mob song. That is such a stupid answer. I mean, it's probably true for somebody, so I probably shouldn't say that it is a stupid answer, but I think, um, it's such a tragic answer uh, to imagine being young and the only thing you want to do is make it. And I think it's, uh, Sadly, the kind of answer that it gets associated with, you know, growing up in urban communities, growing up around violence, but maybe it's the kind of answer that you say when you grow up in an intensely kind of personal, familiar violence that, that troubles you. Uh, I was fortunate, though. I think um, when I was young, I wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to be a computer engineer. I, don't, I didn't know what it was, though, but I was taking Pascal Fortran. I, I, honestly, I probably would have invented Facebook had I not gone to prison. I was ahead of the curve. I was, I was, I was, I was, I was, I guess, older than him. So I was already learning the computer languages. I probably would have invented Facebook. It would have been a more um, conscientious evil had I invented it, though. But yeah, I'd have been an engineer. I'd have been a um, computer engineer. Would you um, trade? I don't even think it's a such thing as a computer engineer. I think it's a computer <laughs> scientist. But I, I didn't know. But I just knew I wanted to work with computers, and I was. I was learning these computer languages and I was good at math and I was trying to figure out a way to um, imagine making a life out of doing those two things. So right now you're doing so many great things. You're a poet, you're a lawyer, you're working a lot with juvenile justice. Would you trade in, would you trade any of those things to be the computer engineer that you perhaps wanted to be when you were younger? <laughs> well, thank you for saying I'm doing so many great things. <laughs> um, what I, I, you know, that's different. I mean, that's an interesting question because because it's not about not experiencing prison as much as it's about um, being a thing that I expected to be or wanted to be when I was young. The truth is that I, I, and I fully don't know it now, you know, to think about what that thing was I was aiming towards. Computers were really new. I had gone on the internet maybe one time before I went to prison. And so what I traded, I have a lot of fun doing the things I do now. Mm-hmm. And really what you're asking me is, what would my life have been like if I had an opportunity to really explore what it meant to to really be programming computers, really be writing programs out? 
um, and and to be doing it at the earliest stages of the game before there existed apps and before there existed Apple. Like I can't even you know I guess you can't imagine a life without Apple, no. right? So part of what you're asking me to do is imagine how I might have functioned in a world that's so unlike the world is today when I was trying to be a part of the creation of the world that we have today. Mm-hmm. And so part of me says that might have been fascinating and interesting, but a lot of things in my life have happened that have led me to have a different kind of mind and it led me to be more concerned with a different way to communicate with people mm-hmm. that I'm bound to say I wouldn't trade it at all because I think poetry will last longer than Facebook. Um, just one quick question. Uh, you mentioned in a previous interview that uh, when you were handed this book in solitary confinement about um, black poems, um, it really resonated with you. And that's when you decided that you didn't want to be a writer. You wanted to be a poet. Um, so I wanted to ask you, like, what do you think distinguishes a writer and a poet and why poet? Yeah, I mean, poets write poetry. And I think poets imagine themselves as the kind of prophet of the literary community mainly because you could write a poem and give it to somebody in a minute or two minutes or three minutes and you could capture a whole world in 14 lines and I don't think that a novelist even pretends that that's the thing that they could do Mm. and so reading those poems made me decide to be a poet maybe because I had the ambition to believe that that was possible in a way that I, I I love reading novels. I love reading books, but I I wasn't enamored with the idea of trying to tell a story in that way. You know, poetry allows you to also, you know, be both empathetic and (laughs) self-centered, you know, like in in a way that, um, that maybe my ego found appealing. The novel is self-erasing, maybe not self-erasing, but you know, the novel is maybe self-sublimating in a way that the poem is not. Mm Mm-hmm. And and as a memoirist, I mean, and you think, what do I write in long form as a writer? I write memoir, which is not the same as poetry at all, but it gives the same type of opportunities to think about the world through the lens of the first person. And in poetry, the first person is not always actually the writer of it, but the first person lends a particular kind of lens to how you write and think about the world. So. So while we're on the subject of your poetry, you said a couple months ago that what drove you to decide to get your law degree um, was a desire to become a lawyer poet um, and to turn these lengthy legal documents into documents that represent what justice sounds like. Um, And I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on how you've blended uh, these two careers, if at all, and how your background in poetry has, has really applied to this field. So those are two discrete moments. One is about wanting to be a poet lawyer, and the other happens later when I'm thinking about what I could do with the law in terms of being a lawyer and trying to manipulate the language of the law into music. I think um, you answer a question enough times and you start to invent what makes the most sense. I went to law school for a lot of reasons. I went to law school because I couldn't afford to pay my student loans. I went to law school because I had done a lot of work around some social justice issues, and I felt like the way I was positioned in that work wasn't the way I would be positioned had I had a law degree. 
I went to law school because I was working constantly with lawyers and no lawyer ever suggested that I should get a law degree. And I went to law school also because my life has been circumscribed by the law for so long that it seemed a natural progression of who I would become. It's like if you were a Pokemon and Sherzard becomes the other Sherzard. It's like that's what I was doing. It's like how do you become the other Sherzard? And and then in terms of the legal text, it's like, well, once you've done it, how do you remember who you were? How do you imagine that you didn't become something else, but you just became more of yourself? And for me, the way to do that was to find some technique, tool, mechanism, argument to be made around the actual language of the law becoming the language of poetry. So, I mean, talking about um, your interactions with the law, in one of your previous interviews, you mentioned that um, America particularly, like, does not value mercy or forgiveness. Um, We don't even value redemption. We value redemption stories. Um, (laughs) And I wanted to ask you to elaborate more on this idea and, like, if America doesn't value these ideals of mercy um, and forgiveness and redemption itself, um, what do we value? Yeah, I think uh, you guys have done a lot of work to research these, this interview. Um, and I'm struck by the way in which I want to disagree with myself. And maybe I don't want to say America doesn't value. I want to say that there is an appearance of the lack of valuing of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure what we could argue that America values, but probably we will have to start with the idea that all men are created equal and argue that the echo within that is all men and women are created equal. Um, so I'm not sure what what it is that I would say that, you know, the we that I'm talking about as Americans when I said that, I meant really us as a community. I meant how do we make value and mercy real in our everyday lives? I mean, you could just think about, I mean, just think about Kobe Bryant. Mm-hmm. You know, Kobe Bryant dies. And when we talk about him, it's not a, to raise questions about how we should think about mercy or to raise questions about what should happen uh, if we're going to compl- contemplate how do you repair harm that you've done to somebody else. Or if we're just going to contemplate what does it mean to be a parent and have to talk to your child about this thing that you've done and this experience that you've had where you apologize for it because you recognize that it was really messed up. That's not why we talked about it. You know, we talked about it really, I think, one, because harm is made invisible in a country. So mercy can't be real if harm is not real. And, and, and maybe I should have been more specific about that. You know, we, we struggle to articulate what it means to try to grapple with violence. And if we struggle to, to, to think about what it means to actually grapple with the actual existence of violence, then of course we can't contemplate in any meaningful way um, how to manage mercy being more than, you know, an idea. I think from an outside or maybe even sometimes from an inside perspective, it can be really frustrating the way that we've seen our legal system and the laws that we've created weaponized against certain groups and really used to repress our rights as opposed to making society better or safer um, or freer. And I'm I'm curious if your experiences with um, the justice system have shaped or given you a sense of optimism or have really shaped your perspective on the law as you now 
have kind of gone into practicing as opposed to any other form of advocacy or your experiences. Yeah, but what if what if the world can't be safer? I mean, what if the world can't be more just? Because, you know, we talk about what we imagine the law being able to do, and we always imagine it being able to do something that creates a different space than the one we have now, something that's closer to utopia. But what if the law can't do that? And so what we just have to acknowledge is that there will be some strain of violence, of crime, of property violence, of drug addiction, of overdoses. What if we just have to accept that? And then what that means is we accept everything is messy. And we just say that we will not use the law to lock people up, to pursue something that we just have already agreed is never going to come. Do I have optimism? I don't know. I'm frustrated by the way that we don't talk about what the law just probably will never be able to accomplish. And so I don't know if I have um, optimism on that front. But then, I, you know, I have actual optimism in terms of thinking about the fact that the more that we begin to grapple with what the law can't accomplish, we allow space for mercy. We allow space for being more kind to those who have failed. Um, and then maybe we allow more room to stop punishing people who haven't failed in ways that demand the kind of harshness that we bring to bear uh, when we can label people as criminals. Um, and I think that's a really important like question to ask. Like, if not the law, then what? And as you mentioned, we just need to be more kind or kind people. Um, and I think I want to track back to um, an instance prior to um, your arrest when I think uh, one of your teachers had talked to you um, and that made a really big impact on you. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that experience and like what you think the role of teachers is in our civil society, particularly in creating more um, empathetic people. I said a teacher made a big impact on me. Um, well, I think um, something around the lines of like um, someone said something about one of your classmates. Um, oh, dying? Yeah. Oh, so that wasn't a big positive impact. Though. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Oh, that was, yeah, that wasn't a big positive impact. That was a big, I don't know how I would characterize it. But, uh, yeah, I had a classmate who had gotten murdered. And 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 then, you know, me and him knew each other because we had detention basically every day in ninth grade. And we had to go to her for detention. And she told me after he died that I would end up like him. And uh, it caused me to turn away from the institution in a way that wasn't healthy. And I had to keep it to myself until I was sharp enough or accomplished enough or um, brave enough to admit that she said that to me and it deeply troubled me and left me wanting to, to not turn to teachers or the school system ever um, not that I was willing to do it much anyway, but uh, I think it turned me away even more. I don't know about teachers teaching empathy. I mean, I think they do all of those things. I think that they could also teach what it means to have a lack of empathy. And and they have a really challenging job because you have to figure out how to deal with, how to be kind to students who sometimes don't deserve it. Students who, you know, loud mouth, talkative, angry, dealing with all kinds of emotions. I saw a poem today about, like, because I didn't have a pen. And a poem was written by a Baltimore kid, and it was about 
like, you know, he got up late because he fell asleep late. It, it was all about, like, all of these things that happened in his life from, you know, being at school hungry because there was no food in the house, having on dirty school clothes because nobody washed the clothes, being late to the bus stop because he had to help some sibling do something, and then getting to school and having a teacher yell at him because he didn't have a pen. And what he was saying was that the poem is arguing that the teacher didn't see all of these other things he lacked, but wanted to focus on the lack of a pencil as a, as a pro as, 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 as really the proxy for the student not being who she expected a student to be in that space. And and then as a reason to like punish the kid and the kid mm -hmm. is like, well, what about all these other things I don't have? And I think being a teacher is rough because you have to find a way to notice all of those things, even when nobody tells you. And you have to recognize that if you respond to me because um, I don't have school supplies and I'm thinking about the fact that I don't have clean clothes, excuse me, the school supplies aren't that important. And and so I think teachers are, you know, they do teach empathy and all those things, but but really they teach you that somebody cares about you. And and they teach you when people don't care about you. And that's what she taught me, actually, what it mean what it meant to have somebody not care about me, who who I thought should have. So Um so I'm curious, you've uh spoke a lot about um obviously like your time in um the justice system and being incarcerated and you wrote in your New York Times piece about the pain of explaining these things to your children. Um, and obviously it's been a central theme in a lot of your work, more recently felons. Um, and I'm curious what your relationship with your story is today. And if you ever get tired of talking about how something that happened when you were so young has now impacted you when you've accomplished so many incredible things that people who aren't as encumbered by these things like dream of achieving. And you have such an incredible, um, an incredible career. Yeah, maybe I'm not encumbered. Maybe I'm encouraged. I don't know. I wouldn't suggest that you go to prison to be encouraged, but you do what you can with what you have. And so maybe I'm not, or maybe I'm both encumbered and encouraged. And maybe the ways that I'm encouraged have some net positive that other people who didn't suffer in the same way lack. The point about being exhausted and talking about the story and telling a story just imagine political ca candidates right now who hoping to be the president. Yang had no hope of, of winning the nominate, that nomination, right? He wasn't going to be the nominee. He told the same story for months. Uh, Biden has lost multiple times before. He's been telling the same story. You know, sometimes you just do what it is that you do and your job is to show up. And this is independent about what I think about any of these candidates. I'm just saying that people go into this thing and they go into it when they know the odds are against them winning. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, I should, maybe I should say Senator Sanders, Senator Warren, Senator Klobuchar. But all of them, you know, they go into this thing and it's not as if it's guaranteed that any of them will win. And for many of them, Mayor Pete, for many of them, the odds are against them winning at all. And they have to say the same thing every time. So I don't know if saying the same thing every time is, a, is, is the kind of disaster we imagine it being. I don't know if it's the kind of burden that I sometimes paint it as being. I think sometimes that it's a duty. And when you cop to having a duty, that means you cop to all of the good and the bad that comes with it. Uh, I don't know. I think 
I was following one of the presidential candidates for a while and I was working on the piece. And what I maybe learned from that is you tell the same story again and again and again because you recognize that you are in front of a different group of people every time. And it might be old to you, but it is not old to them. And if you decide that the thing you're saying is important enough, then you got to figure out how it's not about you and how saying it again is not the burden that others might think it is. Because I could be telling you I'm still locked up, and that would be a completely different story. And um, speaking of felons, uh, you mentioned that like uh, prison is not exactly a static space and how it can be better understood as like a force that enacts pressure throughout a person's life. Um, why do you think... I'd be saying some really sharp shit, man. <laughs> I, I need to start like, writing this down so that I can repeat it. I have it all for you. <laughs> you have it all typed up. <laughs> um, it's like, why do you think it's so important to see prison from that perspective instead of the static space? Yeah, one, I think that you know life is not a static space. Life enacts different types of pressure and force on you all of our lives. And so when we imagine prison is the same way, then we could begin to think about people who are incarcerated as more similarly situated to us than we know. That's the main reason. And I think the other reason is for even people inside to think about their lives as existing on the same kind of spectrum that everybody like everybody else's life exists on. I think it's important not just to reinforce ideas about what it means to be incarcerated that I find more honest and more legitimate to people on the outside, but also to people on the inside. Because I don't want you to spend 30 years in prison and think that you have not had the same kind of life cycle that others have had. I mean, it has been constrained by bars and cages and cells and all of that other stuff. But it has also, if you've lucky, been rich. You know, you can have a rich life despite the fact that it's spent behind bars. And, and, and I think it's important to acknowledge that, to say that, to remind people of that. So that even in their own lives, they can see and think about the richness of it. Because if you can't, then when you come home expecting a utopia and you don't find it, it could be crushing, you know? Uh. So for our last question, we've talked a lot about the different hats that you've worn um, in your advocacy. Um, and I understand you're currently working on a PhD at Yale, and I'm curious about um, what's next if you continue, if you plan on continuing um, to write more poetry or maybe what your dissertation is on um, and how you plan on continuing to um, kind of blend these different different fields. Yeah, the same thing. I mean, the, the PhDs in law and legal scholars tend to write law review articles, and so that's sort of the mode of the dissertation. I'm thinking a lot about some of the things I just mentioned, you know, what is the life cycle of incarceration and what does it mean to go to prison as a 16 year old and do 25 years? Well, you know, we go through different stages as, as, as people period, you know, uh, you remember when you were 16 and who you were at 16 and who you are now. And then imagine who you are 15 years from now. And we admit that our lives are rich and devastating and beautiful and just fraught with so much between the time of being 16 and 39. But we don't admit the same thing about people who spend that time in prison. And so part of the project is doing oral histories of people who have been locked up over that period to try to think seriously about what does that mean? So that when we make arguments about what prison takes away and what it gives, 
I could try to be more exact in discussing what it takes away. And I could be more exact in discussing what it might give and what it gives to people in the best of circumstances. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you, Dwayne, for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. 